and uh, in about uh, six days left. <laughs> so, see this as a that it, the attitude of relaxing and uh, loving kindness, soft, gentle attitudes that uh, tend to uh, to um, they have a good effect on your mind. When it comes, a lot of times we we can be very, uh, you know, like the work ethic, or we've got to get in there and strive <laughs> and get it and achieve and attain. Uh, this is very strong with Western uh, conditioning. <clears throat> and it was interesting uh, in Thailand where they don't have that, the northeast of Thailand, uh, where I lived for 10 years, they, most of the monks were from the farms, peasant boys uh, that only had four years of education. Some couldn't even, some were illiterate. And uh, they had a traditional Thai outlook and the Thai Thai attitude, uh, the old style is uh, is called Mai Bin Rai, which means it doesn't matter, you know, everything's okay. The Thai always say Mai Bin Rai, it's okay. And uh, so Ajahn Chah, like some of these forest that Ajahns in the Northeast, they can speak in a pretty tough way, like kill your defilements, kill your, get in there and fight your kilesas and and. Uh, then they have a kind of hard line approach because this might have been right approach tends to <laughs> <laughs> and so you need something to kind of, you know, push you a bit. <laughs> so I mean some sometimes monks could just sit there and just watch the fly buzzing on the on the wall. <laughs> But the Western conditioned mind is uh, American and European and very, and modern Thai. They have the same problem. They adopt a lot of our bad habits. Uh, is a very, uh, you know, get it and go for it type of approach. And so, just learning how, how the language you use does affect how you see life. I mean, we've got this ability to think and use words and concepts and they do affect how we see things and how we experience life. So if we think in tough ways and we, we see life in that way, if we think in, in my been right ways and it doesn't matter and anything's all right, then we, that's how we tend to, that affects our consciousness in a different way. Also, uh, the American conditioning is one of an emphasis on me as an individual. So, this is me, I have my rights, I'm an individual, I'm, I'm a separate, free individual personality, and I have my rights. And this is how I was brought up anyway. 
there wasn't strong identity with the family. I didn't have a wide, you know, an extended family. I had mother and father and sister, and I never felt I had to get married and procreate the family name. I don't I still don't want my last name to be carried on. <laughs> the slightest doesn't mean anything to me if there are any more Jackmans in the world. <laughs> because because the emphasis was on individual rights and me as a separate, independent, free personality. So this affects how our experience of life very much. And then just holding yourself in that in a, as, as where you're 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 perceiving yourself in very separative terms. And in Thailand, say, in the farms, the peasant, uh, northeast peasants, they see themselves much more in belonging to society and identity with family, village, and Thailand itself. So you have a, a kind of wider, uh, you have, your, your self is, is integrated in, in part of something where, say, for me, I didn't feel part of anything. I was always a bit of an oddball. <laughs> I always felt alienated and separate anyway, even when I was living in the state. So, I mean, it, the sense of feeling uh, alienated, separate, individual, and that was, uh, does create a, a, an, an attitude and a feeling of life. One thing I found as I got into 30, in the 30s, there was a feeling of, uh, of real alienation, of being very isolated, lonely, and a lot of loneliness. Suffered a lot from feeling lonely. And it wasn't because I didn't have any friends, and lots of friends, but I didn't, there was no feeling of belonging to anything, or being part of anything, or being integrated. The whole emphasis was on me, 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 me. And uh, as you get older, that that is a pretty lonely perception to have. <laughs> but it does create suffering. You know? Being an isolated individual is is dukkha. It's not, it's not, it, having rights and freedom and all that has a good side, and I appreciate that. I could do pretty much what I wanted. My parents, they didn't want me to be a Buddhist monk, but they had no right to say so. I'm a free individual, they told me that. <laughs> they said, when you ordain, you're supposed to get permission from your parents. And I said, why? <laughs> that, it's my life, and I can do what I want. And uh, the ties would go. <laughs> my mother and father don't like it. Tough luck. <laughs> and then my parents, of course, they said, "Well, you're old enough to decide for yourself." <laughs> So 
that's what you feel you've got to do, then do that. <laughs> so that's why it's to listen to your, the sense of yourself. Not, not to be critical of it, but just to get to, to, to be the listener to what self really is and uh, how it affects, you know, what, how, what you tend to, how you tend to uh, be taken over by, say, self-obsessions or emotional habits. And so you can't just kind of eradicate it just as an act of will, it doesn't work. I mean, you can temporarily, temporarily suppress, but then it all comes bouncing back. I mean, suppression is, is you know, is, is just uh, looking the other direction. And it's still there, and then you forget about it, and then you suddenly back in your face again. So it's not a matter of of, of just running away or getting rid of. Or, or just willfully rejecting anything, but really understanding. This is why in the First Noble Truth, that there is suffering, or there is dukkha, the insight is dukkha should be understood, understanding suffering. Understanding is like you stand under it, or you just understand something, you have to accept it. You can't understand anything you don't accept, can you? You're just reacting. If you suffering's here and you just, I don't like it, and you run away. <coughs> you can't, you know, you, you'll never understand suffering. You'll just merely develop habits of running away all the time. So then dukkha isn't something, or suffering isn't something to run away from, but understand. To understand something, really look at it, feel it, contemplate it. So this is, and this is, this is why it's going against, say, the worldly values, which is to get rid of what you don't like and try to get as much of what you like as you can. So say the, the, the worldly conditioned mind, say, tends to just, suffering, I don't want it, happiness, I want it. The uh, reason why I want to meditate is I want to be happy. And, uh, and I want to, I want to get rid of suffering, I don't want to suffer, I want happiness. And so that kind of lures us into this, these retreats. <laughs> <laughs> Promising nirvana, the highest happiness. I want that. The highest happiness, I want it. Now the self, then, the, the ego, the sense of yourself, uh, contemplated, not just um, think that you shouldn't have an ego, or that the sense of yourself that you have is something wrong with it, uh, or just be, you know, have, have take, sometimes idealistically think, well, I should get rid of my ego. <coughs> But uh, that's not it. You don't get rid of it. Uh, just, but 
understand it. Know what it feels like to really be obsessed with yourself. What does it feel like? I used to practice just me, me, me practice. And sit there and I'd say to myself, me, me, me. <laughs> me, me, me. <laughs> what I want. I don't like this, I don't like that. If you want to know what I think. And, <laughs> and I'd say all these, these very selfish things. And I'd feel it. I'd really, I'd really try to bring in the, the sense of me. As, uh, and try and just to 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 really feel it, this uh, this obsession with myself as a personality. So instead of just dismissing my ego and saying I, I shouldn't have it, I I would even maybe really consciously uh, and deliberately be egotistical just to listen to it to get to know what it feels like to, to be caught in a, in a sense of yourself as an individual, as a personality, as a man, as a woman, as a Buddhist monk, as a senior monk or junior monk or as an uh, American or as whatever. As somebody that's uh, lovable or somebody that is unlovable. whatever, just to, to see that how, how we create that sense of ourselves. And, and, it's, and a lot of it's just habit, you know, just the, the kind of, uh, you know, it starts building up. I think I, I trace a lot of my emotional um, identities when I was a teenager. Now, I've talked to many people about this, many of the monks and nuns about where you get your kind of your precedent for your ego around 15 or so. Because it's interesting how that, that particular age, that kind of teenage, how it, it uh, the sense of your self-worth and that seems to, this is just a reflection, I'm not telling you, I just contemplate this. It may not be true for you, but, but uh, how the sense of your self-worth seems to, uh, I could trace it back to that. I could see also, say, um, relationships, say, with women, oftentimes emotionally, seem to not go beyond that age for me. <laughs> uh, that there was still a, a kind of a, like a, a feeling of, of uh, resentment towards uh, any kind of authority, uh, authority type statements from women. Like your mother said, darling, I know you should wear your rubbers or something like that. <laughs> 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 still is, uh, I could see just when, when women would get kind of into, I know what's good for you, there'd be a sense of, there'd be an emotional reaction, like uh, a kind of rage or resentment. That, 
that you could trace to maybe getting, this is how I see, maybe getting stuck at that emotional level uh, when you're trying to break free from your mother. <clears throat> and, and there was nothing, there didn't seem to be much, say, emotional development beyond that. There was intellectual development and physical development, but it's interesting to just observe because you're listening to, to what's going on inside you and you, you can see yourself getting all kind of outraged over silly little things and you, you don't know why you feel so angry over something so innocent or, uh, or minor or trivial. And so emotions are, are like that, aren't they? They're when, you know, being, going through university and, and trying to think, conceive myself as a kind of intelligent, rational, reasonable adult male. That's the image, you know, one wants to have. Say, I'm an, I'm an, you know, reasonably intelligent, adult man. Reasonable and, and fair. Fairly good-natured. <laughs> but then some, some of the emotions weren't like that at all. <laughs> Where do they come from? And so, this uh, emotional, I think in, uh, I think the later generations, my generation was pretty uh, repressed emotionally, but during the 60s when I was a monk, I think you were all involved with expressing emotions. And then, well, the soft male or the, what is it, the, the snags. <laughs> Sensitive new age guys. <laughs> this, this came. Well, I was a monk. I didn't, I didn't get in on this. But I did, I was aware that that my emotional reactions were inadequate uh, to, you know, that, that there's something hadn't, hadn't grown up in me on that level. And you can see this oftentimes, for those of you who take care or watch your parents get old, you can see it. For example, my father, was a very, you know, had it was a very reasonable person, uh, very confident in worldly matters, uh, seemingly a very strong, confident, adult, reasonable man. But when he got old, he he and and things fell apart for him. Where he couldn't operate in the world anymore in the same style, and he he started pouting throwing temper tantrums, crying a lot. It was rather shocking, because your image of your father is this, I've got everything under control thing, and then suddenly he's, he's, he's uh, throwing tantrums, or pouting, or like a little child, or crying, or feeling sorry for himself. And so this, this 
you know, understand how the mind works. You see, we have to go through this no matter what. It's, I mean, before we die, it seems like life insists that, that we, you know, are humbled and that we, we have to work through this stuff some way or another. Uh, and so meditation is, uh, is, for me, a very skillful way to do that. In order to, to bring up these unresolved feelings and emotional habits that, that uh, we have. Now, one thing I found it, uh, a certain monastic style I like very much, where, uh, say in Thailand, for example, uh, you, you lived, uh, you were encouraged to kind of go off and live alone or, or, uh, kind of have your own practice uh, uh, you could uh, you didn't have to deal with like the, the, the Thai nuns were always so very separate and uh, they were you didn't you weren't even supposed to speak to them uh, so so that you know I did, after 10 years I never knew one one of them by name they all knew who I was and I didn't and then uh, in the culture, is a Buddhist culture, so you have a, uh, the women all have a certain social sense and, and uh, an etiquette that's appropriate to, to, us, to that style. So, so the, the relationships, say, with women were always rather in a very formal and, and distant uh, way. So they didn't bring up th these kind of uh, strong feelings so much in Thailand. In Thailand, say, what the feelings I had to deal with were around authority. We're living within hierarchical male organizations, like Bhikkhu Sangha, uh, where you had to, you know, be under somebody else, where you had, you had your duties as a junior monk to senior monk, or senior monk to junior monk. And, uh, of course, that's difficult for Americans. Authority is a difficult one. Because we're egalitarian. We're brought up to think we're all the same, all the time, every moment. And, uh, and that hierarchies are bad, and authority is, is wrong, and we should all... We have these ideals that we should all share and cooperate, and we're all equal, and we're all the same. But emotionally, we're not like that at all. That's an idea in the head. But in life, often I found myself very uh, threatened by those above me. I didn't know how to <coughs> relate to seniority. And uh, it, it only through, through, you know, either being very critical of it uh, or suspecting, uh, you know, and resisting it or, or trying to uh, make it all the same. Americans are famous for get, trying to make everyone kind of palsy-wowsy familiar. Isn't that we, in, in England, you get more of a sense of hierarchy or class uh, structure. So they, they, they tend to, uh, the British system has a more a kind of uh, acceptance of hierarchy, but American ones, we, 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 we try to get into a very familiar friendliness almost immediately. That sometimes drives the English up to the walls. 
<laughs> we want to get onto kind of nicknames and pals, right? You know, who's me? You tell somebody your life history in the first five minutes <laughs> and about all your sexual problems. <laughs> because we we feel. We, our security depends on on feeling this sense of equality and uh, and the sameness and we and I you know and and speaking for myself I don't know about you but there was a real uh, kind of ill uh, a sense of discomfort at having to work within a structure hierarchical structure so in the monastic system then of course your work you're you're reflecting on what's happening to you. So I could see in the, the first few, the first year especially, and, and with Ajahn Chah, uh, there, uh, I, a lot of my emotional reactions were very childish. Like, uh, I just sometimes sit and fume and they, you know, resist conforming to the structure. Or I would just think, this is silly, oh, this is stupid, why do they have to do things like that? I wouldn't say this out loud, but I'd... I'd be so opinionated, you know, and I would, you know, the way they would, the, the way they had to do things or show respect or, or the formalities and the ceremonies, I think, this is silly, this is stupid, and, uh, and I'd resist it. But then in, in, the, uh, in this listening and watching this feeling, you know, I became aware of this as a form of suffering, how much I suffered with this resistance to the structure, the, the ceremonial life of monasticism and the hierarchical uh, demands and uh, rights that one has in, in, within the hierarchy. So this is how, you know, these things would rise into consciousness. So I, and, and I deliberately chose a strict monastery because I, I wanted that kind of experience. I knew inside myself that I needed, if I was going to spiritually develop, I needed, I needed to learn how to submit, how to bend, how to obey, how to serve somebody else, because I didn't know how to do that. And uh, I couldn't do it very well uh, until, I, until I became a monk. So I put myself in a situation with a teacher like Ajahn Chah, just deliberately to learn how to serve somebody else and obey somebody above me. Then in, then uh, also it works with as you get seniority, uh, having to deal with, with that, having to accept, like I found it very difficult uh, to except people, like the Thai people wanted to, even when I was a very junior monk, because I was the only foreign monk in the monastery for quite a few years, and they, I was always the obvious member of the Sangha. <laughs> so they'd come and they'd bow to me, you know, I'd be at the end of the line, the last monk, the most junior monk, and they'd go and bow to pay respect to Ajahn Chah, and they'd come and bow to me. <laughs> <laughs> And I'd feel really embarrassed by that. And, uh, 
no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> I, I didn't feel worthy of it as a person. I didn't feel, you know, that I, that, and, and also being American, you're not used to something we never did in our family. <laughs> I just wanted to say, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> but then, uh, then reflecting on it, uh, Lung Po Cha used to say, you know, they're not bowing to you as a person, they're bowing to what you represent. They're not, it's not you as a personality, or that, but what you represent to them. They're, they're, they're saying they respect what you're trying to do. And uh, as a as a foreigner living in a becoming a Buddhist monk, so life does present us with these these kind of opportunities to grow with life. Then in uh, in England, I've been in, in England eighteen years, longer than I was in Thailand. And in, in Britain, there is a, uh, because of, it's not a Buddhist country, you have to adapt to things. You have to, you can't just, you've got the precedence of monastic life from Thailand, but you also have to take into account the culture that you're living in, and the society and so forth. So adaptations had to be made. Also, the, the fact that, that Western women have a different attitude about things. They see, they, we're, we're egalitarian, but most in, in, say, in European countries and, and here in America, we, men and women, are, they're brought up to think of themselves in, as in democratic terms and egalitarian sta uh, standards. So, so your relationship isn't, you can't expect English women to crawl on their knees. And <laughs> <laughs> it's not because they're proud or, or, uh, or arrogant, but it's just that that's not, that's not part of their cultural conditioning. You see? So, so it, uh, having to, say, learn and, and uh, say, establishing forms for women to practice in, such as monastic forms. In Thailand, I'd never taught women or trained nuns or anything like that. Suddenly, I found myself in England having to take on responsibility for teaching and uh, women and training nuns. What do you do with nuns? I mean, before they were all just in the distance. They, as soon as you came in view, they squatted down. <laughs> <laughs> And our nuns wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so this also brings up certain emotions, and and uh, and in in so this you also developing an awareness around what that does, uh, to the responsibilities, and the uh, and the experiences <coughs> that you have to adapt to. Because once you get used to a system, then you feel comfortable in it. So by the time I left Thailand, I was comfortable within the Thai uh, 
social structures and hierarchical structures, uh, I was had found uh, you know I'd become used to it, and it was a comfortable way to live for me. It wasn't by that time I I I'd learned how to uh, to uh, work within their their system and adapt my behavior to their way. So then in England it was a different different. Uh, society, different expectation, different uh, situation. So that makes you feel very insecure. Now what do you do with insecurity like that? If you come out of a, a strict tradition, a very traditional system in Thailand, and the forest tradition in Thailand is a very conservative tradition, and very strict in its training, and then you, and and highly regarded in Thailand. It's uh, highly respected, and then you find yourself in say, a country like England, where you're nobody. You know, your people kind of jeer at you. I think you're, you know, you're you're really uh, very on the freak fringe. You're a marginal person. Where in Thailand I was in the in the, in the tops. The bhikkhu sangha there is, you know, even the king pays respect to the bhikkhu. So I mean, you, even as a foreigner, you were kind of getting in into Thai society at its best. Then you were, people they see you, they go like this, or wherever you went, and people were very generous and very respectful, and I like that. <laughs> I like to be respected. <laughs> and then you find yourself uh, walking through the streets of London and being yelled at Hare Krishna. As one of the more polite ones they yell. <laughs> Skinhead is another one. <laughs> Some I will not repeat. <laughs> So this also has an effect on your mind. To be, to be jeered at, made fun of, and despised. But the, but the uh, practice is the same, isn't it? It's not like this is a, an obstruction to spiritual development. In fact, it's, I found it helpful in many ways because being, being kind of held up and exalted, you get, you get a kind of arrogance. You kind of expect it, and you expect people to respect you. And uh, and but in England, I wasn't expecting anyone to do it. So this is just you know like, say, taking a practice that is based on mindfulness and uh, and and observing the emotional uh, reactions you have to life. And, it, and then, and, and being able to use that whatever, in whatever place you happen to be, what's ever happening. And so that's why in the practice itself to develop a, a trust in the practice alone, you know, and once you get a feeling for the way to practice, uh, then you can practice with whatever life presents you, whatever trials and tribulations you you have to experience. 
uh, training nuns, for example, is is a, is something that that is uh, you know since one had never done this and and also an emotionally kind of stuck at age fifteen <laughs> in regards to women, they uh, then this would bring up these kind of emotions. So it's, it's interesting. Quote interesting. <laughs> <laughs> to see <coughs> some of the the emotions that would be brought up by say the living more uh, closely with with women, where say we the with the nuns or we live in the same monastery and they, we meet together, we have much more you know uh, we closer relationship than say in Thailand. And so, noticing what this would do to the mind. And then, then I contemplated why, you know, some of my emotional reactions to, to them were very immature, or just very dismissive, or, or you could put on the authoritarian, patriarchal pose, and, and just say, watch your mind, <laughs> and, and try to get by on, on just a on the on the hierarchical structure alone, but we're not into fooling ourselves, isn't it? Our spiritual life is we really want to break out of these uh, roles and these uh, conditioning, this this blind conditioning of the mind. At least I do. I don't want to. Uh, I'm not in this life for uh, for anything other than for realization. So so then you, you can only you you begin to observe and notice and contemplate the emotional reactions that that you have and and I noticed that a lot of the uh, that there's a lot of fear uh, and uh, feeling of uh, and, a, and a tendency to dismiss things that I was frightened of or, or felt didn't quite know what to do or didn't quite understand. There was a, a kind of way that I developed to just dismiss things. And so, and through mindfulness and understanding the dukkha, going to understand the suffering, I could, I began to see what I was doing. See the, this, this, the, these habits, emotional habits I developed towards kind of dismissing things. Or just uh, kind of uh, ways that uh, just prejudices, male prejudices about women, or, or just the, um, or or kind of just uh, uh, trying to avoid situations where emotions would be brought up, unpleasant feelings would be brought into your consciousness. So then, it became apparent that that one needed to to learn from a situation. So, in uh, say in the past uh, year or so, I've encouraged the nuns to tell me exactly what they think of me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's very interesting. <laughs> But 
But also, it also is uh, with, because you're encouraging them to be on, not to, you know, you're not doing this as a, as a, just a, a, a gesture of, uh, a, a selfish gesture, uh, but, or to, uh, uh, say, trying to, to uh, intimidate them to say what you would like to hear, but you're, you're encouraging an honesty and an openness, so that uh, then they could say how they really felt. And this, is, this was uh, also, you feel, because some of the things they would say were, were very hurtful in terms of if they hurt to hear them. So, I mean, they could say things that were, that they wouldn't have said, and be nice people and, and uh, good, good people in themselves, they, they wouldn't feel they could talk openly about certain things, especially about their relationship with me or with the monks. And so, so then, uh, trying to encourage that openness, but do it in a way that 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't defend, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, become defensive or blaming. I just listen, accepting, and feeling what they're saying. So then this this would bring up the a, a lot of emotional reactions in me. But the, the but by accepting and understanding. And, and feeling those emotions, it was a way of resolving them. So it developed into a much more mature relationship with the nuns, because they're, they're this, uh, it wasn't, you know, it was, you could see that the relationship I had with the nuns was still, something wasn't, wasn't clear yet. We call it, I think in America, dysfunctional. <laughs> So this is just an example of how to use situations and emotional problems that we have. Uh, it's worth it's worth really examining them and to to really try to and and to accept them. And not I mean the tendency, of course, is because we're rational. We're so rationally conditioned. We want to explain it all, and uh, we want to justify or blame. And it's so easy just to blame one's parents or whatever, you know, that blame somebody else for our particular emotional dysfunctions. But that's not the point. It's not a matter of blaming or, or, or the fact, you know, it's not, that's not really uh, important to, uh, to, to try to Say it's, it's somebody else's fault, but to just accept what you're feeling and to to feel it, not just kind of say you accept it, but but to really feel the the pain or the hurt without uh, blaming anyone yourself or anyone else. So this understanding of dukkha, like standing under, willing to willing to feel pain, willing to uh, to feel despair or grief or fear, things like this, especially the negative emotions. 
And then the, then the miracle of it is in that simple acceptance of those feelings is, is like liberating yourself from those. You're, you're freeing yourself. Your your emotional uh, range then goes towards maturity <laughs> rather than just the, you know, getting stuck until uh, till you're 90 and then when you're paralyzed in your bed having to go through it all there. With conventions we also have, um, it's like say, working through the attachments and identities with the conventions we have. For example, Theravada Buddhism. Uh, this was uh, in Thailand, uh, because there, you know, Mahayana Buddhism was almost, you know, they had a few temples in Bangkok, but they were never a kind of a threat in any way, so one just didn't know very much about them. But there were two sects of Theravada in Thailand, and so this would bring up certain emotions. Like one sect was established by King Mongku, Rama IV, 150 years ago, and it became very kind of prestigious, upper-class sect. And uh, very kind of, could be kind of tend towards the snobbery in a way. And, uh, and I belong to the other one. <laughs> to the Mahanikai sect, which was, which was oftentimes looked down on. And so I'd go to some of these Tamayud monasteries, that's, the, that's the, the posh one, you go to that and then they kind of look down on you. And then you'd feel, you'd feel this resentment being looked down on. And then you'd feel yourself, you know, I'm just as good. We, we keep all the rules of the Vinaya just better than you do. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but, the, but then the, this, it would, you know, this whole sense of superiority, inferiority is something to, to understand. The sense of, you know, how, you know, we don't like to be looked down on or despised or considered inferior. So when we are in positions where that's happening, it's good that we can use it. So, so then, uh, say with uh, Theravada and Mahayana. In Theravada you get some die-hard Theravadans that, that really think Mahayana is, is, uh, is not the Buddha's teaching and uh, they have strong views about Mahayana and, uh, and then in Mahayana, I have the same about Theravada. So I was, my first, my, my interest in Buddhism started with Zen Buddhism. That's before I knew anything about Theravada. And in some of the Zen books, they, they really look, they talk about Theravada as if it's absolutely a waste of time, hasn't produced any enlightened beings since the Buddha, and uh, just totally selfish, and so I had a jaundiced view of Theravada for years. I didn't know anything about it, but I'm reading Aldous Huxley and, and uh, some of the Zen literature. You, develop, you, you just thought it was not even worth 
bother him with. Then I found myself in Thailand. <laughs> so this is, uh, the, but these are opinions and views, you know, and, and uh, the, and, and probably in, in your own experience here in America, where you've got quite a wide range of, of different forms of Buddhism. You've got traditional forms, the Tibetan, the Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Thai, Sri Lankan. Then you've got modern uh, adaptations. You've got Vipassana. You've got uh, all these uh, kind of uh, different uh, adaptations and permutations and variations on the theme. And modern Buddhism, American Buddhism, isn't it? You've got British Buddhism, French Buddhism, <laughs> there's Italian Buddhism, and then there's a, a, you know, an, an individual teacher's version of Buddhism. So I mean, it, these are, uh, these are, well, you know, in, in say in a country like this you've got quite a range, a spectrum of, of styles and attitudes. How do you relate to that then? You know, how do you relate to, to all the different forms of Buddhism, not to mention the other religions? And so you, you, can, you can observe your own, how the, how the kind of reaction you get, emotional reaction. When somebody says Theravada Buddhism is selfish and narrow-minded, what do you feel? Do you feel outraged or do you feel, well, maybe it is. Maybe. <laughs> can, can you be intimidated and caught into doubt or, or do you, are you a kind of a loyalist? Theravada right or wrong? <laughs> Or do you think something called Mahayana, because it's greater, is somehow better? <laughs> and we want to belong to the best, like belong to the Tamayud, with the posh sect, where the king patronizes. I belong to the best. And there's also that, isn't it? Wanting to belong to the best. <clears throat> but that's another emotion we have, a kind of sense of wanting to, to to be, belong to the, the sure thing, the best that there is on offer. <clears throat> so, uh, but th these are feelings, that human feelings, human emotions that we experience. So, uh, in understanding, say, is we're, not, we're not condemning these emotions, we're beginning to recognize them. Because we're, we're understanding, we're standing under them, we're, we're noticing what they feel like. So in regards to the, which is the best form of Buddhism? The people are, what, what is the best? <laughs> of course, Theravada. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, <laughs> but, but that's, not <laughs> that's not the point, is it? <laughs> and the, the, the uh, you know, if, if whatever's waking you up, then that's the best for you. And if you're, 
if if you're just attaching to some form of Buddhism because you think it's better than some other form, then then you're you know, and, and you don't investigate that, and you just believe it, then even if you have the best form, it's still not going to lead you to enlightenment. Because you're, of the grasping that, that's taking place. <coughs> One of Ajahn Sujito, uh, who some of you know, he was, uh, he came to England about the second year that, that we were there, we were still in London. And I met him very briefly in Thailand just before I left. And uh, then his father died that year and, and he came back to England for the funeral, for his father's funeral. And then he told me about, he spent about four or five years with a teacher in Thailand uh, uh, who was an English bhikkhu <coughs> who I thought was a real jerk. <laughs> I met this big girl and I thought he was a real twit. <laughs> <laughs> and so I asked him, I, I asked him, I said, I said, how could you live with such a monk for four years, I think, three or four years? And Ajahn Sajito said, well, he was teaching me Dhamma and, uh, and I was just so grateful that I stayed. And I said, were you aware of his, he was, Ajahn Sujito is pretty, you know, he's not, not a fool. So he was aware of the deficiencies of this monk, wasn't blinded or didn't think the monk was, was a highly evolved, enlightened being. But he had enough confidence in the, in the monk to stay with him and learn. That impressed me a lot because I just dismissed this monk. I'd met him about three times and I, I just kind of dismissed him as, you know, not worth bothering with. And what impressed me was Ajahn Sujito's, uh, knowing he didn't have the best teacher in Thailand, <laughs> but still uh, willing to learn what this monk could teach. And then uh, later the monk disrobed and he had a, and he committed suicide in the most horrible way in Thailand. He he swallowed bleach, and uh, and I think it took a long time to die. Imagine bleach kind of eating up your stomach, and died, uh, and nobody quite understood why, because he he uh, hadn't really confided in anyone. His anguish. But that's an example, say, of, of, uh, of using what's available and learning and, and how, to, how to appreciate and learn from uh, Dhamma teachers without, without, uh, having, without feeling that because they not, might not be the best or what you consider the best that you can't learn from, you can only learn from the Dalai Lama then. He's the best. <laughs> but uh, 
he has so many disciples. Can you imagine? Because I can only learn from the Dalai Lama. So good. Now, how do we get to see that, that conceit and uh, selfishness, uh, uh, emotional immaturity, all these? It's not through through uh, judgment, but through acceptance and through willingness to to experience and feel it. What is, to be conceited, what does it feel like? To think you're better than somebody else. Is that a happy feeling? Is that, is that suffering or is that real contentment? Now when I start feeling somebody better than somebody else and I really look at that feeling, that, that's suffering. It's not a pleasant feeling. At least as far as, as, as I see it. To feel, feel I'm better, or than somebody else, isn't 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 a, a peaceful, doesn't lead towards peace or contentment. Not to mention feeling that you're inferior to somebody else. Now, I mean, there's noticing, but, but admitting one's conceit or a really understanding that sense of I I'm much better than you are. I mean, one one thing that I was a, a person like myself was hard to admit because I didn't like, didn't want to be conceited. So I oftentimes would never admit that that's how I was feeling. And I think, well, we're all the same. We're all equal. No, nobody's better than anyone else. And that's the that's a dismissal, though, isn't it? That can be just a dismissal, because you don't want to really look at what you're feeling. You don't want to have to admit it. So that's why this, this honesty is, uh, is, is, takes you toward, once you admit things and feel them, then they lose their power to delude. You, you have a sense of fearlessness and real courage to face up to everything in life because you know, you can, you know how to do it. Or if you're, if you're, uh, ability to exist depends on all kinds of, you know, control and manipulation of events and of your mind, then you're always going to be, you know, threatened by things when they're, when, when uh, various thing, uh, things are happening that uh, you can't cope with or feel you can't cope with. But you can. And so the, the way of Dhamma then is is liberating. And they talk about fearlessness. 
and say, I used to have a lot of fear, anxiety to deal with. Because, uh, and then worry, a real worrier. <clears throat> and so this was also something to, to notice and to contemplate and to understand these, these kind of this general feeling of anxiety or being ill at ease or worried worried or feeling of being threatened like I could see when uh, when some monk would start uh, challenging me I'd feel very threatened Or some monk, or somebody criticized me, I feel very threatened by criticism. <coughs> so, just, you know, you can feel your, your whole body going, going, going tense when somebody starts saying, I don't agree with you, Ajahn Zemeda, I think you've got it wrong. And you, you try to be fair about it. Well, what, what is your complaint? You, say, <laughs> <laughs> and you try to defend yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you're also feeling this, this sense of being threatened or just the way somebody moves at you just aggressive gestures or like, like some uh, some people have walk in a very kind of aggressive way even though they may not mean it but yet you find yourself kind of, of uh, feeling uh, threatened by the way somebody walks to you walks up to you you go like this. <laughs> <laughs> now this is, this is a sensitive state we're in. This is what sensitivity is, we feel. And by body language, or in Thailand, for example, you, the Thai culture, the, the men and the women are trained themselves to not show aggression. <coughs> So it's always this kind of subdued quality and very polite and gracious kind of movements. And even the men have a kind of grace to them. They're not kind of like that. They move in a way that doesn't, doesn't show aggression, physical aggression to body, body language. And after living in Thailand for years and going, coming to the States for the first time in 76, I, I was going like this all the time. <laughs> Because American men and women have a very aggressive kind of, like this, you know, <laughs> the way they move. It, it conveys, once you've kind of become used to the Thai style, your, your senses get accustomed to that. And then, then I could see why, when I first became a monk, why I, I'd see, you know, I'd walk up to a Thai monk and he'd go like this. <laughs> I was just trying to be friendly, like, <laughs> but the, the body language was, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction was, was a signal of aggression. And so these things do affect us, and we, we can, and, but this, this, this reflective ability we have, we, we can learn how to learn from this, what it is to be in this realm and how things do affect us, how our own thoughts affect us, how they, 
the words, the tone of voice that somebody uses affects us. You know, just somebody's tone of voice can can threaten you or can exasperate you or can inspire you. In in England, for example, they the the, the English have a joke about the vicars, Church of England vicars. Because you meet these these Church of England vicars and they're and they're quite nice people. But then then when they get into preaching, they go into this mode, this certain kind of tone, this preachy tone. <laughs> and you just, it just shuts you off. <laughs> you know, here they're trying to, here they're trying to kind of convey their message, this Christian message, that the, just the tone of voice. And English people told me, shuts that they just don't like that. <laughs> immediately, shut down when they hear, when they go into this, this vicar mode. This is interesting, I mean, because we have similar probably examples here, the, uh, you know, the televangelist. <laughs> Immediately you hear that and you, you shut down. You, know, you, don't, you don't listen, you don't, you're not with it. So, that's enough. Uh, any questions <coughs> you'd like to ask? Um, regarding uh, thoughts and emotions, uh, I was noticing when while meditating that there's a real resistance to letting go of emotions like say, anger or judgment because there's such an identification with them that uh, it's almost like if you let it go, then there's nothing left. Uh, uh, as an example, say, you know, thoughts about some situation come to mind, and there's judgment, and I think, oh, I've got to hold on to this because this is a good argument to, to you know, uh, use when I get back there. <laughs> so even, even if, even though I want to reflect on it, I don't want to let it go because <laughs> there's such an identification with it. You know. But you're aware of that too. <laughs> just, just awareness is enough. Because even, even the idea you should let go is another kind of thing you put on to it. Trust in just, just being, just accepting it. And uh, because as, that's why with language it's always so difficult because you, we tend to grasp the ideas of, you know, like we should let go and then, then we, we don't think we're grasping the idea of letting go. And uh, also we, we can be very uh, idealistic, um, in which we, you know, we we uh, see, we have the uh, we can understand the ideal very well, and uh, then we we see ourselves in terms of the ideal, which of course then we then we think, well, I'm very attached to this anger, or I'm I've got a strong ego. That's why, even that even. Even summarizing yourself is, I've got a, 
big ego or I'm this way or that way. Watch that, that need to identify yourself with anything, with, with even your criticisms. That's why uh, in, I've seen, you know, like, we used to say, in the early years of monastic life, to say somebody says, you're, I find myself saying, you're, you're an angry person, or you, you are oversexed, or things like this. You, you, you're too lustful, or you, you've got, uh, you know, you're neurotic, or making judgments on people like that. <coughs> Then I realized that wasn't very skillful to to give those suggestions to people. So, because especially say somebody in my position, people can grasp that. And Ajahn Sumedho told me I'm I'm an angry man. <laughs> <laughs> so that the 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 uh, important. Thing is, is like in the reflection on Dhamma is anatta. Whatever it is, it's not self. But that, I, that's a skillful suggestion. So anger, whatever. If if you if you're experiencing anger, then there's anger. But it's it's also the suggestion is that it's not your anger. It's what it is, and it's anatta. That gets you start look a way of looking at it in which you're not just once you say, I'm angry, and I'm an angry person, then you've got the whole kind of uh, logic that, and, and memories that come up to prove your case. And, and it just reinforces that, that pernicious kind of attitude that, that no matter what you do, you still end up 20, 30 years from now the angry man. But just the because the, the you you're still holding on to the view of I am the and this anger is my problem. So that's why in Dhamma language, Dharma speak, we <laughs> we we changing to, rather than I'm angry, there is anger. That's more that's more accurate. So even though conventional reality say I'm angry, they are feeling anger. But then for reflection it's better to say there is anger right now. There's this angry feeling. And that that way you're you're not you're not going with the I'm angry because that that triggers off a whole a whole scenario of, of memories and attitudes and assumptions. So that's why just the word I is a me, 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 I am, and mine, mine, mine is, these, these words are, you know, we learn them from early, from childhood, so I like this and I don't like that and that's mine and not yours and what about me and, and so the, the, this, these pronouns are, you know, tend to be, you know, something so, so ingrained in our way of thinking. That's why with Dharma language, you're, you're training yourself to think in a more accurate way, the way it really is. So you're, you're thinking, you're thinking in English, but you're, you're 
you're developing a way of thought that is pointing to the way it is rather than affirming the delusions you've already that you already have there is anger there is lust or there is greed or there is uh, delusion and it feels like this so it's is an honest acceptance and and uh, admission of it, but it, it's it's put in a way that that you're you're not uh, reinforcing it as a personal a personal identity with it. sense of isolation. Um, in, in my travels in Asia, I, my sense of a lot of the um, connectedness that exists, maybe beyond any kind of a, uh, a level of thinking that's somewhat really connected, is really based upon a, a sense of interdependence, actual interdependence in terms of, of, of life, that we don't necessarily, we don't have here. Uh, everybody has their own car, their own phone, or our own, so it, it doesn't it doesn't exist. We we tend to coalesce around crisis. Probably that seems to be the only the, the main thing that we, we coalesce around, uh, and then start to feel dependent. How if you if you recognize the fact that to get by, most of us are pretty independent and and, and have a there's a striving for a certain kind of independence. How do we overcome that? Because we don't have I mean, interdependence, a mutual interdependence that they have socially and economically, in a certain way, fosters the need to be together. Um, that isn't necessarily true here. Well, I think uh, <clears throat> I think uh, there's a kind of longing for communal, for going back to community. And sangha, like sangha's community, or, uh, because it is, it's uh, we've got ourselves into uh, really into a very isolated position, and uh, and there are advantages to that, not to, you know, and I'm grateful for having had such opportunities to to develop myself quite independently of family and all the other obligations. So I'm not, I'm not ungrateful, but also the result, uh, say, of that, just that alone of independence is is loneliness and and uh, a sense of alienation, and and I think that's what many of us really like Asia because in Asian society there is a kind of acceptance of everything, and. Uh, and I felt in like in, I lived in in Borneo and in and in Thailand and in India and, and even as a foreigner I, I had a feeling of being part of something that I never felt here in Washington State. I felt alienated 
uh, as an American from this country. There's one reason why I've never really come back to live here. <laughs> because uh, the feeling of, of not belonging, anyway. And then in the, what surprised me was, was uh, in Asia, where I was an obvious foreigner, I felt more at ease and accepted than I did here. And it wasn't, I mean, even though that you were looked at as a foreigner, there's something basic in the Asian attitude of uh, everything has a right to exist. And, uh, and then so like in India you have, I mean, you, one can criticize India for its lack of social institutions to help the poor or whatnot, but but still, there's, if you notice, like in the beggars or the lepers, they still have a kind of right, they still feel they have a right to be. A kind of, in India, there's a kind of acceptance of everything. Basic, underlying acceptance. That you don't have to prove you have a right to be, you just, because you're there, that's when you're right to be here, to exist and to breathe. And, and, I, and I realized I didn't really feel that. I, I felt I had to prove myself. There's this kind of very obsessive need to prove myself and to be accepted in, in by a critical society that would reject you if you didn't, you know, if you... and who felt maybe you didn't have a right to exist if you didn't prove yourself, that you prove you did. Because we tend to put everything away, hide it, you know, and and, uh, and not want to. I mean, we're in India, everything's out in the open. No, no attempt to disguise. And, and, uh, and in Thailand, there's a, a emotional kind of warmth you get. And uh, this was a that you don't get, say, in England. So, and I noticed this a lot, going back to Thailand, and, and uh, Ajahn Chah's funeral in 92, it was such a moving experience, uh, his uh, cremation ceremony, and, uh, and suddenly I was just so, I felt this real openness to the Thai emotional war. Uh, because there, there is so, like the respect and the people would, would, uh, and they look at you in such a kind of loving way, look you in the eyes in a kind of loving way. Oftentimes there'd be tears in their eyes, things like this, and and that used to embarrass me when people get teary in front of me. Embarrassed. I don't know how to relate to that. But then in, then in this time I really felt this. Uh, uh, this joy, of, you know, could recognize the goodness of that, of the warmth, the emotional warmth that you receive in a country like Thailand. <coughs> then in, in, uh, say, in uh, living in England, what what I love about that country is that it's uh, there's uh, there's a real politeness. And the real respect for for your uh, 
for your life there. You don't, you're not, they, don't, they aren't very demanding on you. English people make very few demands on, on me anyway. <laughs> and so you, you, you know, they give you a lot of space and they're very polite and they, they don't want to, they don't kind of expect a lot from you. So that it, it has a, as a place to live. It's a rather nice society to live in, uh, because uh, you you don't have uh, a lot to, of uh, things coming at you all the time. Where in Thailand, as soon as I get to Thailand, then I mean all that emotional warmth is quite can be quite demanding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything has its advantages and disadvantages. That's why, you know, when you're looking at, like here in America, it's a, it's a much more friendly country. People are more overtly friendly and, and outgoing than, say, in England. And uh, so it's easier to, people are, you know, extremely friendly here. And in England, they're more kind of reserved not unfriendly, but they, they don't express the friendliness in, in, in such an overt way. And so, and that, that's, that also is very nice feeling. But also, Americans get to, can get too friendly. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, you know, everything is, has a, a plus and minus. And that's where, with mindfulness, you, you, you can, uh, you know, you're, you're reflecting, you're contemplating it, not, not saying, not making value judgments like Thailand's better than England or England's better than America or... That's silly. Or it's like Mahayana's better or inferior to Theravada. Those kind of absolute judgments are just quite unpleasant when you, when you hear yourself making them. Because you know, that's not the way things are. Things aren't like that. Thing, things aren't absolute and fixed. Things are changing. And, uh, and every, everything has, its, has, a, has a good side and a, and, a, and a not so good side. And I think now here you read books about coming to terms with the dark side or your shadow. <laughs> and I was in the Gaia bookstore in Berkeley and coming to terms with the shadow. We never talked like that 30 years ago in Berkeley. <laughs> we never admit we had a shadow. You were dark. There was a dark side. And so, I mean, this, you know, it can, we can, we can, the problem with that is that we oftentimes say, I've got to find out what my dark side is, and you kind of make a big thing of it. But, uh, but it does bring into consciousness the, 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 the negative side of our human experience. And in a way that we're seeing it as, a, as, a, as, a, as something that, that we all have and not just a personal problem because like 30 years ago a lot of, a lot of the alienation and isolation was you, didn't, you thought you were the only one that had a dark side. The, and you didn't talk about it to anyone because you didn't want anyone else to know. And you thought they, and you, you, you tended to think maybe they didn't have such problems. 
and you're the only one that had such problems. And that, that makes you even feel more isolated. So, and, and, but now there is an honesty, an openness uh, that, has, that is very much appreciated. But then it can also has a has a has a obstructive side that we get fascinated. We we attach to these the, these images and make a big thing and make a meal out of it, uh, rather than than uh, learn how to say recognize how to realize the dark side without with with and and to be able to accept that without identifying with it. So then you have that, this, uh, like the, this challenge or this, this, uh, this puzzle, conundrum, which you have to, you can't grasp and you can't reject. What do you do? You're not to identify, but you're not to destroy. And so this is where this, this, this intuitive, we can approach this with intuition and with wisdom, like learning to, to even think more correctly. Learning to use our ability to think in a more skillful way than we, we habitually do, because uh, we learn to think in oftentimes just a habitual thinking pattern, uh, unquestioned because everybody's using them and it's cultural and, it, and it's all a part of uh, everyone's uh, way of thinking, say in, a, in, in America. And then now we're, say, using Dhamma language as a, uh, to even question our thinking pattern. <coughs> That's why I, I encourage you to, to uh, you know, to listen to this sense of I am this type of person and I should, I shouldn't be, all this, this and me, me and my mind, to, li- to hear it, so you, you begin to, to hear how your conditioned mind works and what does it feel like and what does it, what does it tend to, uh, what is the emotions that it, that, that, that kind of thinking tend to bring up. Like, like in just say with anapanasati, for example, the, you know the way. You know, concentrate on the breath, and uh, and then you should be mindful of the breath, and then you you get all this instruction about learning to concentrate until the breath disappears, subtle, and you you go into a state of tranquility. And so then uh, you've got the pattern down. Yeah, I've got to do this. So you start doing it. And then you think you're just about ready to get there in the first jhana. (laughs) It's gone. And then I've lost it. (laughs) Get caught in, I'm going to get it, and then I'm going to lose it. I've lost it. I can't do it. I can't practice like that, and, and it goes on into this kind of despairing sense of I can't do it. 
because we still think in uh, we, we, we're not even on, we, we're using just the uh, habitual ways of thinking even about meditation so then meditation can take us to I can't meditate I, I'm not mindful enough I can't do anapanasati I can't get the jhanas I me, me, my, my, and it always, is, and then once you do, you you suddenly realize you've got this really refined state to concentrate, and then the bell rings, <laughs> and then you think, I've got the jhanas now, okay, right, that's it. <laughs> I've really attained something. And then you come back the next day, and because just just whatever you think you get, you're going to lose it. Attainment and loss they go together. So I mean, that's why thinking in terms of I I I've attained this, then in the not distant future you're going to think I've lost it, because that's just the way it works. You know, it's just a. If you get one, you get the other. And so that's why in uh, in uh, successful people, you talk to people who've been very successful in the world, and they, but they also have a great fear of failure. So they 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 win the prize, get the money, and then they fear that they're going to be a failure in the future. I mean. You, you, you're a winner, you also get failure. And so, I mean, one comes with the other in terms of worldly values. So, so that's why in, uh, in Dhamma language, it's not a matter of success or failure. Whether you're a successful meditator or a failure, that's not, doesn't even matter. Even if you're a total failure as a meditator, that's still good Dhamma. <laughs> we can uh, share the blessings.